going to pick that up next week, but um, this morning it's going to be more of a topical overview of a subject that we're going to plunge into on God's prophetic plan. You should find an outline in your bulletin. Uh, There are printed messages, and this is going to be kind of an information dump, so you might want to pick up the printed message and read it over. And there's all sorts of verses in there I simply don't have time to cover in the message. So uh, that is, uh, those are available at both or all three exits and also on the church website. You can access them there. Um, By the way, I, you know, this is going to sound weird, but I've been reading through Zechariah. And Zechariah is not an easy book. And so in my quiet time, I read a chapter, and then on my phone, I can go on there and get my message on Zechariah that I preached 13 years ago and call it up and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I said, and that's what that means. And so that's pretty neat that you can do that. And uh, so I hope you take advantage of the church website. So uh, we're going to look at God's prophetic plan this morning, and This message is going to sound probably more like a Bible college lecture than like a a sermon, Uh, but here's my thinking. Before we plunge into 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 18 and chapter 5, and then 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, which are both very prophetically centered, I thought that it would be important for you to understand various approaches to biblical prophecy. I recognize that for some of you, this is going to be kind of a boring, ho-hum, I already know that kind of thing, and my apologies to you. But then on the other hand, please bear with us, because there may be some who are fairly new as Christians, and maybe they don't know anything about biblical prophecy, and so... Uh, I want to bring all of us up to speed on it. Uh, It's always troubled me, to be honest, that if I were to announce we're going to do a midweek series on prayer and have a prayer meeting, uh, I'd be lucky to get little one section filled. If I said we're going to do a midweek series on prophecy, we'd have the place packed out. There's just this fascination with biblical prophecy that to me, is a little bit based on hype and speculation about the future rather than application to the present, and that's always bothered me. But people are just fascinated to know whether some current uh, world leader's name, when you transliterate it into Greek and Hebrew, adds up to 666, or whether the European Union is the ten-horned beast of Daniel 7, and all of those kinds of of connections. But let me be very honest, you can know all of that and it's not going to change your life tomorrow in terms of godliness and in terms of holiness and walking in love. And that's my concern. Also, I understand that there are many evangelical, Bible-believing Christians who believe that the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, as popularized by Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, or by the Left Behind series by um, Tim LaHaye and 
Jerry Jenkins, is the only view if you believe in the Bible. I won't ask for a show of hands on how many of you think that. Uh, When I was in seminary, that was the view that I was taught. And uh, to be honest, some of my seminary professors taught that any other view is veering off into liberalism. If you believe what the Bible teaches, you will hold to that particular view of biblical prophecy. And when I graduated 40 years ago, that's kind of where I was at. But over the years, I've studied more, I've read more, and I've become less convinced that that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, I'd like for that to be true because, after all, who wants to go through the tribulation? I sure vote no. Um, and, And I'll be honest, I don't have it all worked out where I can give you a neat system and answer every single passage in the Bible on biblical prophecy. I am in process. I read a lot on it. I've read many commentaries on the book of Revelation and other books about the various approaches to prophecy, and I still do not understand Revelation well enough to teach it. So don't expect a series on Revelation to follow this one up. It's not going to happen unless... I get a revelation that I haven't yet gotten. Um, But we're coming to these sections dealing with prophecy, and so I'm going to explain them the best I know how from where I'm at right now and uh, let you know I'm in process. And so I hope you'll join in the process too. So what I want to do today is give you a survey of the major views of biblical prophecy among Bible-believing Christians. I'm not going to give you any views that liberals would hold to, people who deny the Scripture. And I, and I want to give you some of the pros and cons of each view. So I can sum it all up by saying this, that all true <clears throat> Christians believe that Jesus Christ will come back bodily in power and glory But there are major differences about the details of how and when and all of that. And we'll look at some of those. Let me start by saying, as long as a person believes that Jesus Christ is coming back bodily um, in power and glory, we should not make agreement with our particular view of prophecy a test for fellowship. Okay? Because godly people differ on this. Uh, There are Bible scholars who are far more brilliant than I am, and they are basing it on their understanding of Scripture, and they hold different views than I hold. And whenever that happens in the Bible, it seems to me that we need to be gracious, and we need to say, you know, I may not understand everything, because uh, here's a man of God coming out of the Word of God, and he doesn't see it as I do. So I think it's fine to debate these matters in a brotherly, friendly sort of way, but not to attack those who differ with us as if somehow they're enemies of the gospel. That is not necessarily true. So first of all, let me just underscore that all true Christians agree Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back bodily. He is coming back in power and glory. And every view that I will discuss this morning 
agrees with that. Um, as I've said, I don't understand the details of Revelation, but it's very clear he's coming and he's going to win big when he comes, and you better be on his side. That much is very, very plain in the Bible. Uh, at his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-six sixty-four, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seat, sitting at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Sanhedrin understood immediately he is applying the prophecy of Daniel 7, 13, and 14 to himself. He is claiming that he is that Messiah who is coming, who will reign forever. They got it. And they ripped their robes and said he's committed blasphemy. Also, as Jesus, after his bodily resurrection ascended into heaven, and remember his resurrection body was a physical body. The disciples could touch him. Uh, they saw him eat in their presence. Uh, so it's not just a ghost or a spirit body or something. They saw him rise into heaven, and the angel said this, Acts one eleven, This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So he ascended bodily, he's going to return bodily. And however Christians understand the details of biblical prophecy, they all agree with that basic fact. Uh, I would argue to deny that is, is heresy. Now, the differences. <laughs> True Christians disagree regarding the specifics of biblical prophecy, and there are three main views. Some people came up to me after the first hour and said, you left out the fourth view, which is pan-millennialism. It's all going to pan out in the end. And I said, yeah, I, I'm aware of that view. But among scholars, these are the three main views. The first one is post-millennialism. And post-millennialists believe that Jesus is going to return after a time of the widespread acceptance of the gospel. So according to this view, during the church age that we're in right now, the gospel is going to grow like the mustard seed in Jesus' parable until it becomes a large tree. Or it's going to spread like the leaven in the parable until it uh, permeates <clears throat> the whole earth and the world will be largely Christianized through the gospel. Uh, then... Um, after that, the, the, uh, this will be the millennial age. After that, God's uh, kingdom will, um, or during that, I should say, that millennial time, God's kingdom will reign on earth. It will not be literally a thousand years. It will be a long time. They view a thousand years as sort of a symbolic number. And then after the gospel has spread and the world is Christianized, Christ will come back bodily he will raise the dead for judgment. He will bring in the new heavens and the new earth and reign on his throne in that situation. The millennium that's envisioned by post-millennialists is very different than the premillennialist view that we'll look at in just a moment. Um, conditions on earth will not be substantially changed except as you see maybe in pockets occasionally when there is widespread revival. In other words, 
Yes, when you get a majority of people believing in Christ, culture and conditions on earth will change in terms of righteousness. But under this view, Jesus will not be reigning on his throne in Jerusalem over the whole earth during the millennial time. Uh, He doesn't return till the end of that millennial time. People will still be in normal bodies, not in any resurrection bodies, because the resurrection doesn't occur till Christ returns. And there will not be a final rebellion against Christ as the premillennialists believe um, at the end of the millennium. So, in other words, the millennium is going to be a lot like today as far as living conditions, except picture millions and millions and millions of Americans, hundreds of millions, coming to Christ. That will be the millennium. Um, Some of the ones from the past who have held to post-millennialism are reformers Martin Bucer and Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva. Many of the Puritans, including the well-known Matthew Henry, uh, some of you have used his commentary. Um, The Wesley brothers, we sang one of Charles Wesley's hymns this morning. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, and uh, Augustus Strong, a Baptist theologian who wrote a systematic theology, all believed in post-millennialism. In our day, there's a man named Kenneth Gentry and another man who writes books you may have heard of, Douglas Wilson, who contend for this view. Postmillennialism, in its favor, rests on God's um, purpose of being glorified in his creation. It believes in his sovereign power to accomplish that purpose. It believes that he has equipped his church with adequate message and power to accomplish the Great Commission. It has a strong hope in the purpose of the gospel, and it encourages evangelism because it teaches that God will bless the gospel as we preach it and it will spread uh, around the world. Uh, There are many scriptures, of course, that they use to support that view or else there wouldn't be such a view. Scriptures that talk about the ultimate triumph of Christ. There is also a modern form of postmillennialism that Gentry and um, his mentor, the late Greg Bonson, uh, taught, called theonomy. It is also called reconstructionism, sometimes called dominion theology, and they hold that God's Old Testament civil laws should be um, enforced today by civil government. And so they would argue that we should stone adulterers and homosexuals and rebellious children, uh, that all of those Old Testament civil laws for Israel belong in good government today. Needless to say, that's a rather controversial view. Um, Against postmillennialism is, I think, the picture of the end times in the New Testament. Namely, things aren't getting better and better. You read the book of Revelation, and persecution increases against the church Uh, The number of martyrs will increase. Um, 
current world conditions, as I look around, I realize God can turn it around on a dime, but I don't see any hint that the gospel is taking over in any single country around the world in spite of two centuries, I mean two millennia of uh, mission outreach. Um, against theonomy, the, the particular view of postmillennialism is the teaching that we are not under the law of Moses in any sense any longer. And so I, I view postmillennialism as the least convincing of the three views. That's just my personal view. Uh, the second view is amillennialism, and amillennialists believe that there is no future earthly millennium where Christ reigns on earth, but that Jesus is now reigning spiritually over his kingdom. Amillennialism was the dominant view from the time of Augustine in the uh, 5th century down through the Reformation. So for over a thousand years, this was the main view of the church. Uh, some, many, many, I would say, godly Reformed theologians and pastors today hold to this view. Uh, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, many men like that, I think, would hold to this view. I didn't list them in the notes there. Uh, but they would hold that the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 refers to the current church age when uh, Satan's influence over the nations has been bound, as Revelation 21 through 3 explains. Uh, so they would say Satan is bound from deceiving the nations, and now the gospel is going forth unto every nation, every people group. And Christ's kingdom began when he was on earth. It continues now as he reigns over his people. And there is uh, not a future kingdom of God on earth except when Christ returns, he will set up the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, and he will reign forever and ever in that uh, situation. They would also hold... There will not be a literal seven-year worldwide tribulation. Uh, some amillennialists do believe at the end of, the, uh, uh, of this age that Satan is going to be released for a time. Uh, godlessness will increase. The nations will be deceived. Armageddon will take place. And then the physical return of Christ followed by uh, the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked for judgment, and then the new heavens and new earth. Also, all millennialists argue that because the Jews rejected their Messiah and crucified Jesus, the kingdom of God was taken away from them and given to a uh, believing nation, namely the church. And there are scriptures that <clears throat> they use to support that. They would argue that Christ is the true Israel, that he is the new temple of God where God dwells, uh, that um, believers in him are the true seed of Abraham, as Galatians 3.7 says. And they would argue that when Abraham was promised the land, according to Hebrews chapter 11, he wasn't looking for a piece of physical real estate in the Middle East. 
he was looking for that city whose builder and architect is God, the heavenly Jerusalem, as Hebrews 11 would seem to indicate. Uh, So the promise of the land for the people of God is going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth uh, that's going to follow Christ's return. Now, there are some amillennialists, at least one, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Revelation chapter, I mean on Romans chapter 11, argues that there is still going to be a widespread conversion of the Jews, that God is not finished with Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in the end times, there will be this widespread revival among Jewish people, but he and other amillennialists would hold there are not two separate programs for God's people, one for Israel and a completely separate program for the church. In favor of amillennialism is, number one, it's a fairly simple scheme. It's not as complicated as other views. Um, Amillennialists argue that they interpret the Old Testament prophecies in line with the New Testament interpretation of those prophecies, and they often include a spiritual fulfillment in Christ. And I don't have time to go there, but I put a number of passages in the printed notes you can look up that show that they, the New Testament authors believed that Old Testament promise is fulfilled spiritually in Jesus Christ. Also, the amillennialists would argue that Revelation 20 is the only passage in the whole Bible that mentions 1,000 years, and they would argue that the numbers throughout Revelation are obviously symbolic, and that that number is symbolic as well, referring to a long period of time. The main reason that I personally reject amillennialism is it just seems to me they are forcing an interpretation on Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, that does not hold up. Uh, That is the passage that says that Satan will be bound during this thousand-year time. Um, They would argue that the binding of Satan is limited to his ability to deceive the nations, that he can't do that now during this time of the gospel spreading. But if you read Revelation, the picture there seems to be far more extensive than that in that Satan is thrown into the abyss, the lid is sealed shut over the top. That would seem to me to refer to a complete and total uh, restriction on Satan, and yet uh, he does seem to be quite active and well today, even just apply it to the deceiving of the nations. Most people groups around the world have been deceived by the enemy for the past 2,000 years. We still have not seen the gospel spread to every people group. There are many still in spiritual darkness And the Apostle John says that the whole world lies uh, in the power of the evil one. So it seems to me the picture in Revelation 20 does not fit the amillennial scheme. Also, against that view, in my estimation, there are several passages in the Old Testament 
that seem to describe a period of future glory that is greater than happening right now, but they do not describe the eternal state. Uh, For example, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 20 describes a time in the future when infants will not die and when those who die at 100 years old will be considered um, young and that those who don't live to be at least 100 will be considered accursed. Well, that isn't happening now and it won't happen in the eternal state because there will be no death in that time. So when does it happen? I would argue during the millennial reign of Christ. Um, Dr. Grudem in his systematic theology gives a lot more arguments against amillennialism that I can't go into right now. Uh, One other thing, it seems to me that amillennialism goes a bit too far in spiritualizing the prophecies about Israel and applying them all to the church. Uh, uh, I agree that there is some spiritualizing in the New Testament. I'll point that out in a moment. But to me, they go too far. So that leads us to the third view. And the one that I would hold is premillennialism. And premillennialists argue that Christ will come back He will return. He will rule on earth for a thousand years prior to the eternal state. Now, hold under your seatbelts because it gets complicated here. There are two major views within premillennial or classic historic. Well, two are called, first of all, pre-tribulational premillennialism, okay, and historic premillennialism or classic premillennialism. So let me explain both of those. If I had known how to do it, I would have put a chart up here for you, but I'm not sure how to do that under the current software. But first of all, there is what is called dispensational or pre-tribulational premillennialism. This is the view that teaches that Jesus Christ will return secretly for his church, which will be raptured, caught up to be with him in the clouds, uh, before the great tribulation. They will be in heaven throughout the tribulation. At the end of that time, Christ will return again and establish his millennial kingdom on earth. That's the view I was taught in seminary and uh, growing up. It is probably the view that most of you, if you grew up in the church at all or you've been a Christian for a while, Probably most of you hold to that view. Um, There are some dispensationalists who argue that the view has been around for centuries, but almost all scholars agree that the view was developed and popularized by a 19th century Plymouth Brethren scholar by the name of John Nelson Darby. So it's only been around now for less than 200 years in this form. The dispensational view rests largely on two interpretive pillars. One is a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. God has one plan for Israel, another for the church. And the second is what they would call a literal hermeneutic of biblical prophecy. That means 
They understand biblical prophecy. If it says Israel, it means Israel, not the church, and so on. They take it literally. Um, They believe, as I said, that the church is going to be removed through a secret rapture. Then there will be seven years that fulfill Daniel's 70th week. Daniel chapter 9 mentions 70 weeks. 69 have been fulfilled. That will be the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy for Israel. During that time, there will be many Jews who will be saved. Many will be martyred during that time uh, by those who are loyal to the Antichrist. He will come, become in charge of a one-world government in the middle of that tribulation. He will turn against Israel especially. Uh, just as his forces are ready to annihilate Israel, Jesus will return and uh, slaughter all of his enemies and establish his eternal reign in Jerusalem. During that millennial reign, I should say thousand-year reign, not eternal reign, during that thousand years, Satan will be bound, as described in Revelation 20. Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. At the end of that time, Satan will be released, and, um, and there will be people who still resist his rule, Christ's rule, and they will join forces under Satan and lead a final rebellion. Fire is going to come down out of heaven and consume them. Uh, Satan will be caught, thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet, and the dead will then be raised for judgment and unbelievers thrown into the lake of fire. I just summarized for you Revelation 20. Uh, We don't have time to read it. Now, there are a few variations within the dispensational pre-tribulational view. So we're getting even more um, wings here under this, or or branches under this tree. Uh, One, some hold that there is such a thing as a partial rapture. And the partial rapture view is that um, those who are overcomers, those who are watchful, who are walking with Christ, are going to be snatched up before the tribulation. The rest of the church, which has grown lukewarm, will go through the tribulation to be purified and ready for Christ's coming at the end. Uh, The well-known Chinese evangelist and devotional uh, writer, Watchman Nee, held to a partial rapture view of prophecy. Then others would hold that there is a mid-tribulational rapture or a pre-wrath rapture, and they would hold that the first half of the tribulation is relatively peaceful before Antichrist takes over, and the church will be taken away right before then, then he will come to power. So there are those variations. The main reason that I no longer am convinced by the pre-tribulation rapture view of the church is I just don't see two separate returns of Christ taught clearly in the Scripture. Uh, if it, if It's a fairly major doctrine, okay, that there's not just one return, there's two. Where does it say that? And I I once heard Dr. Richard Mayhew of the Master's Seminary, who is a pre-tribulation rapture uh, proponent, 
he said you have to infer it. It's not directly taught. You have to infer it by piecing together different portions of Scripture. John MacArthur argues the same. So if you believe to that, with that view, you're in good company. Um, but I just find that hard to, to swallow. Um, but here's how they would argue that the inference is true. First of all, uh, there is Christ's promise to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10 where he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing that is coming on the whole world. And they would argue that that applies to the church at the end of this age. Secondly, they argue the purpose of the tribulation is for the pouring out of God's wrath. And we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation, as we'll see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Um, Third, they would argue that if Christ is not coming until the end of the tribulation, then his coming is not imminent. In other words, he couldn't come today because we aren't in the tribulation yet. And so because his coming is imminent, it must be pre-tribulational. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, in his massive book, things to come, gives 28 arguments in favor of the pre-tribulation rapture. If I were going to go through all of them, you better get your lunch uh, brought in because we're going to be here all afternoon. Uh, So you can look them up. Uh, John MacArthur, I think, limits his arguments to about nine or ten. But um, anyway, let me just briefly respond to those. On the Revelation 3.10 one, that isn't clear at all. That's a disputed passage. And why does it only apply to one of the seven churches, not to all seven? Um, You know, there's just too many interpretive issues to apply that to the church. Concerning God's wrath, um, granted, we are not destined for eternal wrath, but the church down through the centuries has suffered greatly when God's judgment has come upon a particular culture. Uh, The church has suffered persecution. It is today. If you were a Christian in Iraq today, either you would be living in a refugee camp or you would have been annihilated. Uh, That's the reality. The church in Syria and, and in Iraq has not been spared from wrath. Temporally, they are in heaven. And so I just don't buy that argument. And frankly, I think that's one of the great um, flaws that has happened with the pre-trib rapture is comfortable American Christians think, hey, I don't have to worry about persecution because I'm going to be raptured. Let me say to you, you may die a martyr's death as a Christian in America. Things are not boding well for Christians with this upcoming election and the future of the country under our current president. Our religious freedom is eroding rapidly. And you may pay a difficult price for being a Christian. So don't count on the rapture and don't have to suffer. You may suffer like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are. Um, Concerning the argument about imminence, I don't buy it because 
the Olivet Discourse, and all agree, at least um, all premillennialists agree, that it's talking about the second coming, not the rapture of the church. And yet, throughout that discourse, Jesus keeps saying, uh, you got to be ready. You better be on the alert. He says in Matthew 24, 44, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't think he will. And so he's basically saying, I'm coming and you better be ready because I could come when you're not even prepared. And he's talking about at the end of the tribulation. So if his coming is imminent at the end of the tribulation, maybe we need to change our definition of imminent to understand that. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean he's coming at any moment in the beginning. Furthermore, there are predicted events in the New Testament that have to occur before he comes. So he couldn't have come, you know, uh, a week after he ascended to heaven. For example, uh, he tells the disciples in Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that took a lot of time. In fact, here we are 2,000 years later, and it hasn't been totally fulfilled. He also said in the Matthew 24 um, Olivet Discourse that the end won't come until the gospel has been preached worldwide. And that's the task of the church. The Lord told Peter, you're going to live to be an old man. So he wouldn't have come back before Peter got to old age. The Lord told Paul, Uh, As you bore witness for me in Jerusalem, you're going to bear witness for me in Rome. So the Lord couldn't have come until Paul got to Rome to bear witness and that sort of thing. So the idea that we have to hold to the pre-trib rapture because Christ could come at any second just doesn't hold up. There are things in the Bible that talk to his coming being future and yet uh, we need to be ready because we don't know the exact time. Uh, as I said, I hope the pre-trib rapture's view is, view is true because I don't like to suffer. But that's not a guarantee we won't suffer. Uh, we may suffer. So that leads to the final view. And that is the post-tribulational, it's sometimes called classic premillennialism, view teaches that the church will go through the tribulation followed by the second coming of Christ and then his millennial reign. This view is also called historic premillennialism because it was the view of the church, the major view of the church, for the first three centuries of church history. Uh, The late George Ladd advocated this view. Douglas Moo, a commentator I often quote, uh, is post-tribulational and Wayne Grudem, the theologian whose series we're watching on Sunday nights, he defends this view. Um, As I said, the pre-tribulation rapture view rests on two pillars, a firm distinction between Israel and the church, and also literal interpretation of biblical prophecy. With regard to the distinction between Israel and the church, I see some distinctions, but As I read the New Testament, the church is not just a parenthesis in God's program for Israel. 
Israel, now true Israel, believers, are one in Christ, Jew and Gentile. We all have become one in Christ. I don't think that's going to dissolve somehow. And whoops, now we're back to two different groups in the millennial reign of Christ. Um, I think we are the culmination of God's redemptive program. Many dispensationalists argue that during the millennium, the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt and there will be literal animal sacrifices offered in Jerusalem at the temple as memorials of Christ's sacrifice. I really cannot swallow that view. It seems to me the book of Hebrews is absolutely clear. Christ fulfilled every sacrifice. He is supreme. Why go back to that, even as a memorial, when Christ, our sacrifice, has once and for all been offered? So I just can't, can't accept that view. Now, regarding the literal interpretation of, of prophecy, um, there's a book by a man named Vern Poitras called Understanding Dispensationalists. And he points out there are a number of places where even dispensational interpreters interpret Old Testament things in a spiritual manner. For example, the church is now the temple of God. Paul says that directly. You know, the temple isn't, even if they built a temple in Jerusalem, that's not the temple of God. You are the temple of the living God, and he dwells in us. First uh, Peter 2.9 says, We, the church, are now a chosen race. That's clearly a reference to Israel in the Old Testament. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's us, not Israel. There's a spiritual application of the promise to Israel now on the church. Regarding... Um, a secret rapture for the church. The text we're going to study next week in 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18 to 18 is often used as a main support for that text. John MacArthur says so in his study Bible notes. But as I'll point out next week, it doesn't sound like a secret rapture. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. I woke some of you up there. And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God is going to blow. That doesn't sound like a little secret rapture. That sounds like a worldwide event that everybody's going to go, whoa, Uh, look at that. So I am in agreement at this point in my spiritual understanding with Dr. Grudem, who sums it up. He says, the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture is an inference from several passages, all of which are disputed. Moreover, even if one believes this doctrine to be in Scripture, it is taught with such little clarity that it was not discovered until the 19th century. This does not make it seem likely. Well, I don't expect that I convinced all of you this morning, and I don't demand that you agree with me. I would ask that we would disagree with one another graciously on this subject because, again, there are godly scholars in every camp. 
Now, whatever view you hold, I want to wrap it up this morning with four concluding applications because I've given you a lot of information, but prophecy is given to change our lives. So these four things. First of all, whatever view you take, the Lord Jesus clearly is going to return bodily, and when he comes, he's going to execute judgment on unbelievers. And that, coupled with the uncertainty of life, means this. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to do it immediately, not later. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Christ could come or you could die and you will face him in judgment. So the Bible says, now, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. A second application, and by the way, you can use that when you witness to people. Say, you know, if the end comes or you die, you're facing God's judgment. A second application, in light of his coming, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul talks about the second coming in that chapter. He says, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Here's why, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So serve the Lord. Thirdly, we can have assurance and comfort in the midst of world upheaval and turmoil. Man, you turn on the news and sometimes you think, is this world out of control or what? You know, with terrorism and all the crazy stuff going on. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign and he works all things after the counsel of his will. The Bible assures us that God sets up rulers, the most powerful rulers on earth, and he takes them out on his schedule for his purpose. And while they're in power, he uses them for his purpose, as he did with Cyrus in the return of Israel in the Old Testament. And so... Even Antichrist is not going to thwart God's plan. In fact, it's in God's plan. Antichrist will come to power. He will deceive many. He will be judged along with those he deceived. And God's program will be culminated after that. So in light of that, Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, uh, which talks about the nations raging and the peoples devising vain things. It ends by this uh, command. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then finally, 1 John 3, 3, talking about the Lord's coming, again says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So make sure that you're living in holiness, realizing the Lord Jesus is coming. And he wants us to be his people, set apart from this evil world, walking in holiness before him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace in reaching out to us with the gospel, that you opened our hearts to respond I am burdened that if anybody here has never believed in Jesus, that they are under your wrath and 
it could soon be kindled against them. I pray that in your mercy and grace you would open their eyes to see that their sin puts them in line for your judgment, but also that they would see that Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross for sinners, that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life, that they might trust in Jesus. I pray, Lord, for we, your people, that we would walk in holiness before you, We would long for that day when Jesus will return and fix this mess of a world. Help us to be faithful, even if persecution comes to America, that we would be godly people, even unto death, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.